so Joel, after the ACP OMNS event, we went to the San Diego Safari, which is this massive uh, zoo out in the hills of California, just north of San Diego. That was really impressive. And the one thing they have there you can't see anywhere else in the world besides Australia is platypus. Like they, evidently, Australia does not let platypus out of the country, except somebody must have snuck one out and brought it to San Diego. Uh, I saw the I saw the thread with you and Rosemary talking on Slack. <laughs> did you know that platypus are venomous? I did not know that. That makes no sense to me. Right, and I thought, well, that's that's crazy, right? But Rosemary said, yes, they're they're venomous, and you stupid Americans should know that. And I thought, well, isn't everything in in Australia venomous? You know, obviously. But here's the thing, right? So when you get into the platypus area, it, it's it's dark like night because they're active at night. So and they have this pool there, and you see these platypus swimming along. And in my head, I thought platypus was like the size of a of a beaver or a small dog. It's about the size of a squirrel. They're tiny. Oh, I thought I I legitimately thought it was like a river otter size like animal. I know, right? And maybe it's just because of that that platypus cartoon. I just assumed that they were bigger. You ever seen that platypus cartoon? But I, I was just really thrown off by how small they were. I thought, well, okay. It was worth seeing. Obviously, it was worth seeing. But the coolest thing we saw was elephants. So they had a, a really big area for elephants, and they had a lot of elephants. And they, they had uh, put these hay bales way up high uh, so that elephants had to really, I don't know why you torture an elephant like this, but they had to reach really high to, with their trunks to reach up to grab the, the hay. And I, I, was, I was sitting there with my son, Adam, and I said, how those, they can't reach that high. He said, don't worry. So the elephants actually took these blocks and sort of stacked them to make like a step to get up to, to, get up to, the, to the hay. So it was like watching animals use tools to get to the food. Like, wow, that was pretty cool. You can do that at a buffet in Texas. You don't have to go all the way to San Diego for that. Right, Phil, the Siemens Energy Annual Shareholder Meeting was today. So that when this podcast comes out, uh, which will be Tuesday, uh, that shareholder meeting was held on Monday early in America time. Uh, that was fascinating to watch. I haven't seen a shareholder meeting like that in the past, but it was all virtual. Uh, so you had a panel of the Siemens Executive Committee and the... Uh, yeah, all, all the important players are in one spot, uh, but everybody that was chiming in was remote <laughs> from their home, it looked like. There's there's a lot of problems going on with Siemens Energy at the moment, and, and, and it's all focused on Siemens Gamesa, right? So the every part of Siemens Energy seems to be making money and is really solid. It's the Siemens Gamesa piece that's making the shareholders really upset. Uh, the approach from Siemens Energy today was we're going to provide a, a, a leash uh, for Siemens Gamesa to straighten things out. And if they can't turn it around in the midterm, then we're going to think about unloading it. I'm not sure who they would unload it to, but the, a lot of questions about the due diligence that happened when they acquired the last little bit of Siemens Gamesa, who reviewed the assets, uh, what happened on the engineering side for all these problems they're having, who reviewed that, how much did it cost, 
and maybe Phil, you saw something different than I saw, but or read it something different. But Siemens was providing no answers to questions like that. It was uh, we had reviewed, we had we thought we we're going to buy Siemens Gamesa in twenty two. The problems happened in sort of early twenty three, and it's just kind of too late. We're kind of locked into buying this thing. And we still don't have solutions for the problems on the 4X and the 5X platform. Uh, we, and a sub-tier to that is they may end up suing the suppliers. Which suppliers those are were not mentioned. There was some probing around that. Nobody knows. Uh, but this is weird. I, I, it, the whole situation is weird because there are very pointed questions asked of the the board, but there were not much answers returned, and I we'll have to see what the stock price does, Phil. But is is the industry getting confidence in Siemens Energy because it is profitable? If you leave out Siemens Gamesa, strong company, obviously. Sure. Um, the the challenge though was, you know, they they basically came out and said that they weren't either misled or fed dodgy information but for this to happen where you've got a, an issue that a blade manufacturing issue that they still don't seem to understand or at least if they do they're not communicating the fact that they understand it that they've resolved it and that they're going to get back to selling which is something we talked about you know uh, for for the past few weeks and the the reality of that is they they must have been provided either bad advisory or they're they're just somehow negligent in you know the, their their own job as as leaders of of this company um and i'm i just i can't really get my head around how you're going to say that you weren't provided incomplete information or at least you know maybe you just didn't know enough to ask the right questions um but again i mean that's on you you know if you're siemens energy and you got yourself into this situation you really only have the mirror to look in the blade issue was interesting in the discussion because the description that was given was they didn't know there was a defect in the blade unless you got to these particular load conditions it wasn't like every braid's going to break. It, just, it has to be in a particular wind configuration, which I, they didn't describe at all. Uh, and so th I, I interpreted that like maybe the certification process wouldn't have caught it if there was a defect in the basic design, that there's some sort of odd load, wind load that they, or vibration or torque or something. It was hard to understand because it was such a high level what the detail was, which was a little confusing because I think they would have helped themselves, but just saying it's this, it's wrinkles. Everybody has wrinkles, wrinkles we can fix, but they didn't say that, which makes me think it's something a little more deeper into the design, the basic fundamental design. Yeah. And keep in mind, by the way, I mean, they weren't clear about who their suppliers are to the, the investors, but if in case the investors want to know, their suppliers are uh, at least for fabrics and poltrusions, they're, you know, companies in Europe. Um, and a couple in Turkey and China. And, you know, one would assume, oh, well, it may have been like the Chinese companies or whatever, you know, dodgy, dodgy parts or just cheaply made stuff. But I, I'm not so sure necessarily because this, 
you know, the, the pultruded rods, it's a different, you know, it's obviously a different technology than just making a, a glass blade, even a, even a, uh, glass blade that's got high modulus material in it. Um, or there's single shot cast blades like the, you know, the B75 and everything, you know, that's bigger than that. Um, so it, this is, you know, it's a new technology. It was originally conceived of to be a, a carbon glass hybrid. And, and, you know, again, maybe there's just a fundamental issue with the way they were approaching the, the manufacturing of that. Uh, other companies have been using carbon glass hybrids, although not quite as um, as readily, uh, even Vestas is still using just the carbon pultruded rods for, for the big turbines, uh, even the big offshore turbines. Um, so yeah, it's, I will acknowledge the fact that it probably is something that might have been missed by like a DNV or two or whoever they got to, to sign off on the certification. I think it was UL, to be honest with you. I think it was UL. I, I'm not a hundred percent on that, but I think it was. Yeah, but that's still the point. Like, it's okay. I I buy into you could have loads cases that might have been outside the design parameters, but even with that, you always have safety factors, and so I still don't really. There's something that we're all missing with this. I guess is the easiest way to say it. At at some level too. You I mean you can have the best the best looking FEA model in the world. But if you're, you're doing a FEA f finite element analysis, that's how it based. It's CAD software that models all of these things, right? Testing and modeling are two separate things, but modeling usually comes first. You can have the best modeling software solution in the world. However, they're not always 100% correct, right? They're, they can miss stuff too, because they're only as good as they are ground truth. So there, it's a possibility that this thing went through all kinds of certification testing. They never actually hit that load situation. Uh, whatever that may be, and FEA didn't catch it because the FEA models didn't catch it. There's there's actually some pretty um, uh, famous cases of that happening with bridges, uh, with load modeling and things like that. I mean, of course they were. It's mostly frequency stuff, but but Joel, the the issue I think is they haven't started taking orders again, which makes me think like there's at least six months away from having an answer, right? My biggest trouble here, Alan, you and I talked about the software earlier today. We were saying like, okay, you listened to the call. I, I didn't listen to the call, but you're saying like they dodged some questions, right? Like who, who did the investigation? Who did this? What's going on here? And they still have not come to my knowledge clean anywhere where they're like, this is the issue. This is how it's going to get fixed. This is how, when we're going to start selling these things again because we're going to have an updated design and model. And now it is, okay, so today is February 26th. When this initially broke, I think it was actually August 26th when we were talking about this the first time, right? It, it's So it's been six months now um, for a massive, and they lay and they fired a bunch of engineers. And they So of course, they've had third-party consultants come in. Six months is a lot of time. I mean, you're in a, a, a fiscal year half of a fiscal year cycle to not be able to say what's really going on. I think it's it's too, and, th and that's where you can see from an investor standpoint, from a person buying new turbines, if I was buying new turbines right now, I wouldn't even invite them to the table because I'm not going to deal with what's going on here. I'm going to say GE, Vestas, maybe some Nordex, depending on where I'm at, what's going on. That's that's my take on it. And Phil, what does that mean long-term? If, if Siemens is expecting... Siemens Gamesa to produce in the midterm. You know, they're they're not hoping for any, anything this year. Clearly, they're looking towards twenty six, maybe even twenty seven. 
the lack of orders right now is going to hurt them at 26 and 27. So is this, uh, you know, a foregone conclusion at this point? Like if this goes on another six months where they're not selling 4X and 5X machines, I, I don't know if they can get out of that hole. I would tend to agree. Uh, I think this is, and that would be just the craziest and saddest thing to, that you've ever seen in this industry, because think about, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, how, you know, successful and how much like Siemens Wind, Danish Siemens Wind was thriving after, you know, having gotten in bed with bonus and, um, you know, I mean, just building you know, tanks of, of wind turbines, basically. I mean, those things, you know, were, were kind of built to last. And this whole thing, I mean, it's, you know, the investors have called the, this whole merger a, a nothing but a debacle. And I guess I would have to agree. Um, you know, but the investors even on the call today were like, all right, well, we'll give you, you know, a little more time, but uh, you know, this is kind of your fair warning that if you don't get your act together, we're, we're coming for you and it's going to be heads are going to roll. And it's, it could even lead to them not only selling off this, um, you know, wind energy business unit, which again, I don't necessarily know who wants it because in the history of, of the wind sector, nobody's ever wanted to really buy a distressed asset. They all want an asset strip. Like, which is the only thing that, that Siemens Gamesa is generating revenue on right now is a lot of the legacy, um, you know, uh, uh, service contracts that they had, plus what they asset stripped from Senvion when they, you know, did exactly that. So I'm, I'm slightly dubious as to how, you know, and yes, they're making some, or at least generating some revenue. I don't even want to say making profit out of the offshore business. But that's not enough to sustain what they're doing uh, with lack of orders and onshore. This is going to take way longer than 2026 and 2027 for them to turn it around financially. Like you said, Phil, we don't want, nobody wants this. Nobody wants Siemens to have to fail, to get parted out, to anything. We None of us want this. So, And we've been talking about the, all the bad, the bad, the bad since, like we said, in August uh, when they first announced some of these troubles. Um, you know, we heard whisperings in the field for for a while. But then we heard it from from the mothership there. But but the things the company's doing good right now, right? The SG fourteen two thirty six direct drive machines or the fourteen two twenty two direct drive machines. So their offshore division, uh, they're selling turbines. We just saw a big order come for like one point was it one point four gigawatts for one order that we saw off yeah in in at the in the Baltic Sea there us offshore Poland. So there are things that are going good. For Siemens Energy, um, on in you know a different, I don't know if I want to call it a silo or a revenue stream or whatever that may be, but in their offshore business unit, that's that's going well. Joe, let me ask you this because one of the discussions today, there's a, a lot of questions from employee investor groups back to Siemens. The it was an odd discussion uh, because one of the rationales for buying Siemens Gamesa so they could have more control over it. They had control over it. They had the majority stake in the company. A heavy majority stake. Right. Is it because they weren't, what was preventing them from controlling the company when they owned two thirds of it versus a hundred percent of it? I don't, I'm missing something here. Like were they barred from entering 
parts of Seamus Gamesa. That just seems weird to me. If, if That's a huge stake in a company. Owning two-thirds of it is a huge stake. The last third shouldn't matter. To be honest with you, and I know maybe, and maybe this is probably a, a, an unpopular opinion, but to me, that seems like the difference between institutionalized investor communications and Joe Blow investor communications. Right, they're telling they're telling people like what they want, almost telling people what they want to hear. There, because at the end of the day, yeah, if you're Christian Birch or Brock or whatever his name is, and you own or you have sixty percent, like you can step in there anytime you want and tell them what to do. Like that's that's how it works. Are we wrong about that? I thought it was an odd answer to a simple question. There's got to be some kind of reason that they were extremely transparent about having an issue, but then seem, I mean, they've had fumble after fumble on not only this, but, but a lot of other like financial disclosure statements that they've made going back to like May of, of last year where again, yeah, that's, I mean, the, the public announcement of this, like Joel's been saying came out in August, but I mean, we were hearing things as early as May, um, that, you know, their, their profitability was, was still going to be impacted. Um, they must've known for weeks, if not months prior to this announcement in August, um, about this blade manufacturing issue. So this has been going on for at least nine months now. And for them not to be able to kind of publicly communicate that they have their arms around it is there is something fundamentally wrong and why Siemens Energy Management hasn't already stepped in. Like, why do they keep giving them a free pass? Even, even you know, the, the, uh, and the investor meeting, they were told, you're on probation, uh, was the quote that, that came out of the investor call. Uh, I mean, why is anybody still on probation after like nine months of this going on and six months of it going on publicly where they've been just lurching from one PR mistake to another? Uh, that I just can't get my head around. Well, let's talk about the funding they received from the German government versus the lack of funding to getting it from the Spanish government, right? There is a, a number of investors, if I remember this correctly, saying, why is Germany backing Siemens Energy? They don't need to be doing that. The, the citizens of Germany don't need to be doing that. And that's sort of wrapped around the context of Spain's not doing anything. And <laughs> so... Uh, that one of the, my thoughts watching this go on is why you why did you buy this asset if you want needed to have control over it who are you taking control from was it from the Spanish government is that what they were talking about is there a, a a context that we in America just don't understand because to me that seems like the bigger play like there there are countries with a lot of uh, employees at stake is is it a German Spanish discontinuity or some sort of <laughs> disagreement that's that's happening at the moment that we just don't see because it's all behind the scenes? No, I, I would say that it, it, it kind of comes down to the, the people who were in control of Siemens Gamesa prior to the majority ownership stake uh, were... You know, the investors and shareholders of Siemens Gamesa, of which Iberdrola was a big one, uh, and they're obviously a major Spanish utility. So there was definitely a Spanish influence, but I don't think it was at a 
governmental level, per se. I think it was, you know, see, Iberdrola, back in the Iberdrola slash Gamesa days, where, you know, Iberdrola had a majority stake there, it it gave them the opportunity to almost vertically integrate with the utility, you know, a, a turbine supply. And, I mean, you look at a lot of the legacy projects that, that Avangrid has in the United States, for instance, the overwhelming majority are some kind of a Gamesa, you know, G80, G90, whatever. And they did spread out um, to GE, they spread out to Vestas, they spread out to, to even Suzlon um you know a few a few projects but um you know a lot of what they did was just you know a, a deliberate kind of repetitive process where it was easy to get projects you know financed when they you know banks knew like okay it's Uberdrola asking for the money and they're going to use a Gamesa turbine and whatever the Gamesa performance record is at least it's known like the devil you know beats the devil you don't so you know that that was what was being given up when Siemens Energy came in, um, and you know, and well, I mean, also being given up when Siemens Wind and um, and Gamesa first merged. So you know, Iberdrola's value got diluted, and and you know, equity holding got diluted down. Um, in from that perspective, and then. It was Siemens AG and then Siemens Energy saying, okay, well, we're going to plow even more money into this. And they basically wedged Iberdrola out to the point where, you know, I don't, I don't know how much Iberdrola still holds, but it's not much anymore. Um, you know, they, they definitely own some shares still, but it's, it's not any kind of uh, even significant minority anymore. I'm seeing a Netflix special out of this at some point. Or at least Prime. At least Prime. There is something happening here behind the scenes. I mean, the other interesting thing that came out of the call today was the fact that, you know, the, the company is basically agreeing to pay back the German government a minimum of 100 million euro a year, um, which I think is kind of hysterical, because if you remember how much the government guaranteed, it's going to take them about 1,200 years to pay. <laughs> to pay back the whole thing, you know, like it's that's so, you know, good, good luck with that. Well, the, the German government just backed the banks. The banks wrote the loans, but you know, obviously they're going to go to the German government to go cash it in, right? That's still par part of the stipulation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lightning is an act of God, but lightning damage is not. Actually, it's very predictable and very preventable. Strike Tape is a lightning protection system upgrade for wind turbines made by WeatherGuard. It dramatically improves the effectiveness of the factory LPS so you can stop worrying about lightning damage. Visit WeatherGuardWind.com to learn more, read a case study, and schedule a call today. NG took a $774 million impairment charge due to issues with, of all things, Nordics, onshore wind turbines in the U.S., and they also took a hit on some long-term U.S. energy prices in the kind of the southwest of the United States. Uh, so the, the, the Nordics turbines that NG is complaining about only had a 30% availability. That seems pretty low, Joel. 30% uh, availability is not where you want to be there. Nordex obviously declined to comment because they don't do that, but what is going on here? To put it in context, and Phil will probably have an exact number for this, but the, an armchair number 
is if you're if you're above 40 you're doing really good if you're at 38 39 that's more average some sites if you have a 50 percent availability site you're you're really kicking it uh but 30 is extremely low yeah well they do so ng owns uh at least four project sites according to our our own uh data set and it looks like the problem children may be dakota range three which at this point in time, even though it's got a capacity factor of something like 39%, um, that project is uh, in the red in terms of its lifetime profitability uh, by about $7.4 million. Um, the uh, uh, Iron Star uh, project seems like it's also uh, maybe has a, a bit of an issue, but... Um, uh, you know, uh, there's there have been reports of these kind of teething issues with uh, Nordex turbines around the world. I mean, there was a, a project in Chile where they had a problem with a blade. Um, other issues in Australia with the same make and model, this N149 platform, which actually, I mean, when it works, it actually works very well. You know, it, it performs just as well as, as like the Vestas B150. But there have been reports of, of teething issues and other things that have, um, with, with kind of newly installed projects that have just, uh, you know, started to have an impact. And, and obviously now, if it's impacting a major customer like NG, who has been very loyal to, to Nordex Asiona throughout, you know, this, this uh, history, they, they want to be able to buy more of these turbines. They certainly buy a lot of them in Europe, but for projects in the U.S., I think they're, you know, at a point where, I mean, we're running out of turbine OEMs to buy turbines from at this point. I mean, you know, it's like GE Investus or it. Uh, I mean, if if you can't buy from Siemens Gamesa and you can't buy from Nordex because they're they're not reliable enough, I mean, who else is going to step up? Yeah, I know Alan and I have watched a few things happening in the background with the Nordex platforms. I know there's that that project up in Prince Edward Island, Canada, but those are AW three thousands. I do know some AW3000s down the Gulf Coast that have some issues too. Like they have some pretty bad leading edge issues. They get some lightning protection issues. Quite a few things going on there. Is that because Nordex is so established in Europe that just coming to America, it's just a different environment? Like Phil was, everything Phil mentioned was outside of Europe. But if you talk to people in Europe, they love Nordex. It's fantastic. It's, it's like the turban of choice. Phil has told us this, though, actually, because he said, like, the, they don't get the good sites. They don't always get them, right? So, like, if you're going to do a, a wind farm on PEI, like, Prince, yeah, over here they don't. Prince Edward Island is, like, that's brutal up there. Like, I golfed there once, and it sucked. <laughs> that was beautiful. I love the people. Shout out to my buddy, D yeah, Dave Gallant. He's my friend from PEI. He's great, but... The the it like the wind up there the the conditions up there are brutal and I know the other ones that are then the other axionas that I know of in the states that have some issues they're right on the Gulf Coast and those that's a just a nasty atmosphere I mean you're not you're onshore yes however you've got the Gulf of Mexico right there you've got hurricanes blowing through you've got this weird cloud layer that hangs most mornings all winter long that's about a two three kilometers from the beach. Like there's, you know, so leading edge erosion is an issue there, but there, and lightning's bad because you're right on the coast. So that's, those are in a bad spot. So if you're, if everybody else is kind of shooting for the other big, the big three, uh, and I would say Nordex is the, the would be the big four um, in the United States, 
they're just not getting the choice sites. So they, I mean, things kind of suffer. It's a weird reality, but it's reality. And the site conditions in Europe are also very different where they, the capacity factors are lower. You don't have sites that have the potential to get up to like a 40, 50, 60% capacity factor like we do over here. So I'm sure that those, you know, because the legacy Nordex turbines are built like tanks and they, they can run and run for days. And there's even some project sites in the U.S. that have the N90 2.5s, um, you know, and, and even, um, you know, some of these other, um, you know, uh, of those kind of, you know, N80 and N90 um, kind of family of products. Um, but the, the N149, the 155 and the 163 were all built based on the combination of, um, you know, Asiona technology and Nordex, although heavily influenced by Nordex. Um, and so they, you know, it's just a bit surprising. I mean, every product that gets launched has some kind of, you know, teething issues, product quality issues, what have you. And it's just whether or not the, the company is has the wherewithal to be able to stand behind what they're doing and, and fix it, um, which is why, again, it kind of as we go back and contemplate what's going on with Siemens, you, you, you kind of question how that devolved into such a state. But again, with this situation, you know, they're, they're going to get through this. Like Nordex does tend to make a, a quality product and... You know, the, the challenge that they've got is because they they don't seem like they perform as well, uh, and then having this kind of a financial impact on a major customer like NG, um, the banks look at them like they're just not as financeable. It's almost, it's like three tiers. There's like GE Investus, and then maybe there's a, a tier like 1.5 where you've got like Siemens Gamesa. And then you've got like a tier two, which is Nordex, and then tier three is like everybody else, including the Chinese OEMs, you know, as far as getting financing in, in the U.S. market. And, and that's just what the thing looks like. No, I, well, there is from the standpoint of if you look at dollars for turbine capex, dollars per megawatt hour produced, which is actually a metric that we started tracking, um... Nordex actually ended up lowering their turbine price so that they could get the same dollars per megawatt hour that GE gets. So GE charges a price premium, but they also produce at a premium. So they they can afford the price premium that they were charging, or at least they used to. And now again, there's all kinds of commodity and raw material costs, you know, baked in, et cetera, et cetera. But that's what GE used to be able to do is they used to command a price premium because they used to produce more with the same, you know, megawatt platform that, that everyone else had. And Nordex used to be forced, particularly with the Asiona turbines, but even to an extent with these new, you know, um, you know, N149, 55, 63, um, those platforms they've had to lower the price to get the same dollars per megawatt hour uh production that ge and and to an extent vestas have that's a little crazy right just build better turbines call alan call alan hall to design your lps system you can eliminate a lot of issues that way that would save a lot of money hey uptime listeners we know how difficult it is to keep track of the wind industry that's why we read PES Wind Magazine. PES Wind doesn't summarize the news. 
It digs into the tough issues. And PES Wind is written by the experts, so you can get the in-depth info you need. Check out the wind industry's leading trade publication, PES Wind at PESWind.com. So we, obviously we were all in sunny San Diego. You can tell from our tans that we were in San Diego. We weren't, we were outside. We were outside like maybe 10 minutes the whole week. That show was crazy in terms of the participation and the number of people from around the world that were there. A lot of activity on the exhibition floor. I did not get into any of the sessions at all. Maybe Joel did. I, I didn't because we were just so busy at the booth taking questions about lightning protection. And that was uh, a lot better than it has been in previous years. Yeah, I'll tell you, a lot of communication about lightning. That's an interesting one. I'm not just saying this because WeatherGuard, and that's kind of what we do. But uh, earlier in the week, I was at Blades USA as well, and it seemed like whereas lightning has been a back office issue that people knew was there, but they didn't really talk about that much and was more around leading edge erosion in the past years, right? Or like certain structural cracks and things. Almost every person on stage at one point in time mentioned lightning and or how are you handling lightning and or what does it look like for a crack propagate or, you know, damage propagation with lightning? Um, one of the presentations was a quick patch UV resin patch. I was like, hey, if you have a lightning damage, and you want to close it up before winter, before, you know, you actually have to deal with it. Patch it over. Boom, boom, boom. Like, oh, that's a good idea. Um, but so a lot of a lot of talk about lightning. And this was on the show floor as well. That exhibition, if you've never been there, is a lot of ISPs, quite a few Blade people, a lot of people from, you know, like their their central maintenance facility type thing where their procurement people are walking right with them. We met some people like that as well. They're looking, they're talking to Blade ISPs or torque and tensioning companies, breaking maintenance, whatever it may be, but the companies that are out in the field working, keeping these turning turbines getting built and being ran, you see... The big asset owners walking right hand in hand with their procurement people. So you see people at the show, you're like, ah, I know a lot of blade engineers or a lot of, you know, development engineers, but who are you? And he's like, oh, procurement. Oh, okay. So, yep. So they're, they're looking to see who's out there, who's got the best solutions, who can offer them people. That was a big one too. Hey, we're looking for technicians or we need X amount of teams. Can you, can you get these teams for us? Um, so in that same breath, we talked about it at Blades USA. We talked about OMS. We actually recorded a few segments that will be coming out um, with different training facilities. Tower Training Academy in, the, in Las Vegas. So they're out in Nevada and they're, and they're doing full GWOs, top to bottom. A uh, really cool opportunity there for people to get in with on-the-job training as well. Uh, I spoke with, recorded a little session with Blade Repair Academy, Alfred Crabtree and the team over there. So they're training, wanting to train up more composite techs. We talked with Kevin Doffing and Will Friedel, a couple of vets that are in the industry with different in different different areas, and they're talking about the opportunities to bring veterans into the workforce. So, and they did a panel of that at OMS as well. So we know that's an issue. Um, there's and we talked about it regularly at the show, but the ACP organization was also uh, speaking about it too. I was surprised at the lack of new tech. Like usually every year there's something cool. I mean, Arones is bringing new new things, obviously, but it's like uh, derivative, a lot of derivatives this year. The We did see some new UV resin, UV curing stuff for blades. That was cool. 
Polytech had its new LEP, but uh, yeah, nothing, nothing against Polytech, but it's another LEP solution, right? It's, but it's custom curated to be for onshore. So we spoke with them. We recorded a little session with them. That'll come out. We, we, but you're, you're correct, Alan. Walking around that show floor, it is a lot of bearing companies and gearbox companies and XYZ companies. And there is some innovative stuff out there, right? Like Ping is there, but Ping's been around now for a few years, right? They're coming out with a new, some, new, some new stuff in one of their solutions, which is great. Uh, some some data backing up what they've been doing, but uh, not a whole lot of nobody making a massive splash and people talking about it like, oh, did you see that? Didn't hear that. Yeah, which is a little odd because you think with the amount of effort going on in the United States, you'd see more solutions being brought to bear and uh, trying to drive the industry forward, right? I think one of the complaints you hear from the operators is we need to simplify this thing and we're getting overwhelmed and the engineering staffs are are too small for the for the number of projects that they own it, it's a constant problem i got an email back from someone today we connected with a lot of people on solving their lightning issues with WeatherGuard. i got an email back today that was like man we really want to engage with you guys however we're hiring another blade engineer and they'll have to take that project on in april when they get here because we don't have the capacity to even have the conversations which is crazy, right? Uh, but to, to, to forward your point there, we talk about this regularly. It's a pain point of mine personally that the U.S. doesn't bring enough innovation to the space. All of those solutions I talked about don't come from here. Ping, Grat, Graz, Austria, Polytech, Denmark. I mean, the, our friends from Power Curve were there with their AeroVista product, Denmark. Bergelin, Germany, right? So the UV resin cure stuff, Germany, Aeroans, Latvia. Nothing is coming from here. It's bizarre because the, the number of Germans in the United States outweighs anything in Europe. And it's it's the marketplace for it. There's investment companies floating around, right? I talk, talking with people, talking talking with some that were there hunting some investments, talking with some that are uh, part of investments for some of these solutions that are out there. And they all say the same thing. We're, where's the investments that we can invest in here in the States? And they're just not there. Yeah, isn't that isn't that funny? I ran into to VCs on the floor that were like, "Hey, we're looking to invest. Like, we don't really need money right now, but I know companies that do." And so we would I'd help connect them up. I I do think there is a lot of cash ready to go to push some new technology forward in the United States. There just isn't the company to put it into, or companies to put it into. The the companies we know, the sky specs, uh, those type of companies are flush with cash already, right? Everybody's poured their money in there. It's the sort of the next generation of those companies that's just they're waiting for because they do see the opportunity. There's a lot of wind repowering going on in the United States. It does seem like there's opportunities out there and uh, maybe we'll see more of it in Minneapolis. So also we we should talk about where OMNS is going to be held at next year. If you don't know already, they, at the end of the conference, they started uh, blurring country music on like, we're in San Diego. It's not really a San Diego kind of music theme. I heard the music, but I didn't realize that's what they were doing. I even saw people line dancing in the aisles, and I was like, "Man, I would you couldn't pay you couldn't pay me to do that." And then I just now that you said that, put that together. So the next OMS is going to be in Nashville, Tennessee, the home of the Grand Ole Opry. And I, I don't see that as a wind place. Tennessee doesn't have a lot of wind turbines or a lot of wind energy. One, one project. Yeah, it's not easy to get to. You can't one flight it to Nashville. 
doesn't have really an international airport. Maybe they fly to Canada from Nashville, but that's about it. You're not coming from Denmark uh, and landing in Nashville straight out. So a little bit of an odd one. Maybe they're trying to mix it up a little bit. But we're going to be in Minneapolis in a couple of, couple of seems like weeks now, Joel, for the big ACP. That one's going to be interesting because it's going to be cold in Minneapolis still. So it wasn't like sunny San Diego. Yeah, a few years ago, the Minnesota Twins, they built a new stadium, and it's an open-air stadium. And they start baseball. It's being April in Minneapolis. It makes no, made no sense to me when they did it. Uh, and they've had to move games, so that could happen. Um, I'm from the upper Midwest, right? So we'll see some friends and stuff in Minneapolis. It's going to be good. Uh, there's a couple operators up there. There's some insurance companies up there. A lot. Chicago's closed, so people will come from there. That's going to be fantastic. Uh, but first week in May in Minneapolis, just so you guys know, check the weather because it could be 85 degrees in Minneapolis or it could be snowing. We don't know. That's going to do it for this week's Uptime Wind Energy podcast. Thanks for listening. Please give us a five-star rating on your podcast platform and subscribe in the show notes below to Uptime Tech News, our weekly newsletter. And check out Rosemary's YouTube channel, Engineering with Rosie. And we'll see you here next week on the Uptime Wind Energy podcast. Cool.